Well, it's good to see you guys, and considering the insanity that has gone on this morning from all of the crazy traffic and the shutdown of the 15, I'm glad you are here for this service. Those of you who decided to stay home and watch on Facebook, we're glad you're with us as well. Um, I'm just glad I'm here. My wife's been gone on a mission trip for the last two weeks, and so I've had, been a home alone with my three boys, and if I wasn't wearing a VBS shirt, you could tell a lot more than that because I would be wrinkled and nasty and I would smell bad. But the, uh, it's just been one of those things I'm praising God for VBS because they had my, my, you know, one of my children busy and they gave me a reason to keep working and my kids were good and some doing different things. And so I was just praising God for what happened at VBS this week. It was an exciting and awesome thing. But I've come to a decision when it comes to this series, you know, no restrictions apply, that this sermon doesn't apply to me. My, my wife's not leaving again on mission without me for two whole weeks. That's just not going to happen. So in order for us to continue to support missions, I got out there and I did a little bit of research. So we figured out a way to do this. So what I did is I found that there's this Instagram, new Instagram filter. It allows you to look like you're in a third world country. So when she ever, she wants to go somewhere, I'll just say, hey, just add this filter in. You'll be good. Let everybody think you're somewhere you're not. And so in case you're wondering, yes, they even have one for interior like American missions so that you can look like you're in inner city mission in LA or something like that. So great, great application. I'm kidding. This is uh, from the, from a group called Babylon B. They, they love to do kind of, they're Christians who make fun of ourselves basically. And I love kind of their satirical website stuff. And th this was one of them, but it gets to that, that peace in the church where honestly we can get to where we want to virtue signal. We're all about missions. We want to do something about missions, but we don't actually engage or apply. And, uh, you know, that, like, we have our excuses. We say, I can't because, you know, I'm a, I'm a dad and be left home with three boys and the house is going to burn down. Or I can't because, you know, I've got a job. Or I can't because I've got, um, you know, this situation in my life that won't enable me to, to do global missions. And so we've been looking at these restrictions. And the answer is that no restrictions apply. Um, there's no need to virtue signal. God wants this gospel to go global, and he wants to use all of us, that we've all been called, we've all been led into the church, which is a global, global thing. And so what we're doing is we're talking about these restrictions, and we're looking to take them from I can't to I can. Now, by the end of the series, I'm hoping that everybody at Olive Branch can, has no more I can't mentalities, but has the I can. I can go. I can pray. I can give. I, I can serve in some way. I can do something that enables the gospel to go global. And the things that I thought were restrictions are not. The things that I thought would hold us back um, don't hold us back at all. In fact, one of those serious objections that are out there that has come up and will come up over the next couple of weeks are objections over leadership. In fact, we've had a couple of things. We've had people say, well, I can't really go because I am a leader. We've had other people say, well, why are you sending them? Don't you know they're leaders? Don't you realize that we need them? They're called here. Why would they go somewhere else? And these are two real objections that we want to observe and look at today. In fact, we're going to be diving back into the book of Acts, and we're going to look at verse, uh, actually all, the whole of chapter 12 and a little bit of chapter 13. So if you want to grab a Bible and open it up to Acts chapter 12, you can do that. You know, there are Bibles provided under seats, or you can pull out your app or whatever um, you're doing uh, for you. So in our case here, we're looking at a book, if you're first time with us, called the book of Acts. It was written by a man named Luke. He was a physician, so I'll call him Dr. Luke from here out. But Dr. Luke was asked by a Roman official 
to put together the, the story or the, the, um, the history of the life of Jesus and the life of the church up to this point. It had only been about 20 years. And so as he dives in, we wind up with two volumes. We end up with the first volume being what we know today as the Gospel of Luke, and the second volume being a history of the early church that is found in, we call it the Book of Acts. So the Acts of the Apostles, the Acts of the Holy Spirit, there's all kinds of different names that we've given it. But technically, this is Dr. Luke's history of the church, of the early church and the movement of Jesus. And what we've just seen is that Jesus has, you know, he's ascended into heaven. He had sent his disciples out to bring the gospel to the nations. The Holy Spirit falls upon them, and this local ministry begins in Jerusalem, where a hundred plus thousand people will come to know Jesus in Jerusalem uh, through a persecution led by a man named Saul, who will later be converted and become the Apostle Paul. This Gospel spreads to Samaria, then over, um, then spreads beyond that. Now it's come to the city in the north called Antioch, where a church was established, and they've heard there's a famine that's going on, or that's going to happen in Jerusalem. So they sent food and preparations to help the church in Jerusalem overcome the famine, and that's where we've left off. And so it picks up here in verse one about that time, that time of the famine. King of the time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter. Just for a little background here, there's this man named Herod. Now, this can get confusing because there are a lot of Herods in the New Testament. I mean, the first Herod you meet is the Christmas Herod, right? This is the Herod that wants to kill the babies and, and, and kill baby Jesus. And, and so you always meet Herod every year when we go through Christmas. The second Herod that you'll meet is the Herod who beheaded John the Baptist. And he's the, he's the Herod who wants Jesus to show up just before he's crucified to do magic tricks for him. So he's all excited. And that, that's a different Herod. He's not very strong, but he's, he shows up in the narratives of Jesus. This is the third Herod. He's the grandson of the Christmas Herod. Christmas Herod being Herod the Great. And this is Herod Agrippa I. And he's the grandson, and he's the most powerful Herod since Herod the Great. And he has just kind of started being king. He's been ruler for a while, but now he's been told, you're the king of the area. So he's building relationships with his constituents. He, he wants the Jewish people to love him. And so as a king, he's trying to figure out, how do I do that? What's really going to garner some you know, goodwill? And so he figures out, hey, you know, if I get rid of this annoying thing called the way, or we know the Christians, the church, the Jewish people seem to like that. So he proceeded to have James arrested, likely from the temple, and per prosecuted and ultimately beheaded. And so now he goes, hey, this works. Let me grab the next guy. So he grabs Peter. And so now these are the two of the top three guys that Jesus would always bring along. If you've read the narratives of Jesus, uh, you'll, you'll see that the, the biographies of Jesus indicate that he had three guys he kept with him, Peter, James, and John. Uh, two of them were the sons of Zebedee, and now James is gone, and Peter's in jail. And what we seem to know here is that we don't hear the apostles in town after this. It seems that they kind of looked at the picture and they went, we need to get out of here, and they kind of spread out. In the meantime, Herod has some very serious plans when it comes to this Peter that he's working, that he's got. In fact, he goes on to say the, that this is during the days of unleavened bread. So this is about 10 years after Jesus' original, uh, Jesus' resurrection. And so he has grabbed him, and when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over 
to four squads of soldiers. It's 16 different guards to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So this is no joke. He's going to have a rotating cadre of four guards on him at all times. He's not going to let this guy out, likely because he's heard from the Sanhedrin, you need to watch it. It's kind of hard to keep these apostles in a jail for some weird reason. They kind of keep popping out for, out of there, even when we don't know how. So he's like, well, I'm going to put maximum security on him. And so he locks him down, and he planned on letting, killing him after the Passover. So this is important because what Herod's trying to do is he's making a spectacle out of this. During this time period of Passover and unleavened bread, the, church, the, the city of Jerusalem would expand to a million plus people. The streets would be packed. Everybody would be excited, very aware of what was going on. This would have been a very public execution, trying to make very clear that we have the power over this thing. We've got it under control. You can ignore it now. Well, in this situation, the days are rolling by, and the church now has to make a decision. Passover, they probably had a meal and they probably were gathering, they're talking like, what do we do about Peter? How do we do this? Somebody probably yelled, we, we should storm the prison and we'll break him out. You know, and everybody's like, yeah, I can't do that. Four squadrons. You know, that's not going to be, that's not going to happen. Oh, I know. Let's make picket signs and we'll riot and we'll just stand there and shout and petition the king. You know, nobody does that. We got 100,000 people. Let's mobilize, right? No, actually what they do is they pray. This is how they engage. And so it says, so Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. And this is important because the goal here is, is that they're hoping and, and asking God to act. But the question in the text is really this, will God answer? Will he really? I mean, do you think the church didn't gather to pray over James? Do you think they weren't begging God, please release James, we don't want him to die, he's one of the apostles, he's a leader, we need him. But he is dead. And now they're gathering to pray, and the question is, man, is God really going to let Peter out? And so the day after Passover passes, they're still praying because it's, time, it's Sabbath time, and they know Herod's got some plan over that next week of unleavened bread to, to have him executed. And so on comes Monday, and they're praying, and, and they've celebrated the resurrection on Sunday. But what's going to happen is they're praying, and they're praying, and they're begging God to act, and finally God's not doing anything. If the whole day goes by, night hits, they know the announcement is this, Peter's going to be executed in the morning. And so it says, now when Herod was about to bring him out, that on that very night, isn't it like God to wait to the last minute? He, he's going to wait to that last second, he's ready to act. It was that on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers. I love that. He, you know, Peter's that guy that we all know, we have that person in our life who, they can sleep anywhere Right? They just fall. It's like it doesn't matter if it's a bunch of lumpy ground or whether it's a soft pillow. They're just out. And this is Peter. He's just, he's out. Middle two things is going. I'm seeing Jesus tomorrow. I'm good to go. No problems here. He's between two soldiers. He's bound with two chains. Centuries before the door were guarding the prison. I mean, he is locked in. There is no escape, is what this means. No way he's getting out. And so everything is set up against Peter from escaping. He's not going to break loose. Nobody's going to break in and help him. And so then it moves on. And behold, now whenever you read those words, and behold, you pay attention to Scripture. It's the, uh, it's the narrator saying, listen, check this out. Whoa, no way. And she's like, what? What is this? So he says, and behold, take a peek. Look at this. An angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. 
And you'd think the light would be enough to wake Peter up, but like I said, this guy can sleep through anything, right? Whether it's Jesus needing help and praying in a garden or whether it is a situation of a, of a prison setup, it takes the angel to kick him in the side. That's how I see it. He struck Peter on the side. Whack, wake up, get up, get dressed. We got to get out of here. That's the actual translation. I think it's a better hold of the Greek. No, I'm just kidding. But that's my translation. And the chains fell off his hands and the angel said to him, dress yourself, put on your sandals. And he did so. And they said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. The cloak part's important. Gets his clothes on, gets himself dressed, but the cloak is his outer garment. It's the ability for him to kind of hide himself and blend in a little bit. Because now he's got to get out of a prison. And he's got to get through some streets. And he's got to get to safety. And this angel starts to lead and guide him. Which, I mean, there's a lot of miracles in this one moment. Chains falling off. Why aren't the prison guards seeing the light in the room? What are the other guys doing? This is a century. Just standing there where the door opens and closes, and they're like, yeah, it's the automatic opening door. Whoops, guess that malfunctioned. No, they're not seeing any of this stuff. And so, you know, this is the kind of story, let's be honest, that makes a lot of non-Christians, a lot of people who don't believe the Bible go, yeah, you Christians, you'll believe anything. Come on. Really? Chains falling off, people walking out of prisons without being seen. Look, I'm just going to tell you, yeah, that's pretty, pretty amazing. But this is, this is over the top even for the Bible. This is so incredible and so unexpected, not even Peter believed it while it was happening to him. Look what it says, the very next sentence. He didn't know what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. I mean, he's literally laying there, get up, get dressed. Oh, I know what this is. (laughs) Okay, I'll follow you. He's like, man, this is just that bad Roman food they gave me last night, and I digested poorly. And what he's going through is a process here of disbelief. He doesn't believe he's going to be let out. James wasn't let out. Why would he be let out? The whole narrative is stacked against the impossibility of the situation. That even he doesn't believe it. He doesn't even realize what's going on. Not even he's convinced. And so he just kind of obeys. He thinks it's a vision. And when they passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city, and it opened for them on its own accord creepy, right? Kind of one of those spooky scenes. He walks out into, the, out into the moonlit area. It's a full moon night or pretty close to it anyway. And when they went out, they went along one street. And so he's like, okay, just follow. And immediately the angel just goes, boop, pops out and gone. No instructions. No, hey, you know, God wants you to go do this. He's like, okay, check, done. Leaving. It's like there's Peter's standing there in the middle of the street. Okay, prison guard one street away. I mean, this is intense moments. At any moment, one of these guards could suddenly go like, hey, where's the dude who's supposed to be chained to us? Prison break! Go, go, go! You know, anybody on the street could be just strolling down going, aren't you the guy who's getting executed tomorrow? Somebody sitting in there, sitting up late at night with their lamp burning and doing their little whatever they're doing, look down and go, hey, who's making the goats? Hey, isn't you that, that guy who preaches in the temple? I mean, this is not a safe moment. You don't sneak around at night without Roman guards or, or anybody noticing you. And yet here he is, one street away from his imprisonment, on his way to safety. Anybody, I mean, this is not, this is, this isn't, you just need the intense music behind it. That's all that we need, just to make it a little bit more of what it actually is, what's going on here. And so when this angel just blinks out, just leaves him, Peter came to himself and said, now I'm sure the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all the Jewish people were expecting. I'm sure he said it just like that, Luke. Um, 
But he probably said some, thought these thoughts and came to this like, my gosh, God's really got me out of this. This is incredible. And so he heads to a safe place. He starts moving down streets. And we realize this. He went to the house of Mary, the, son of, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark. We'll meet more about John Mark later. He'll become a traveling companion for a couple of missionaries. And we know John Mark the best, though, because one of the biographies that we have today are, are one of his. We call it the Gospel of Mark. He would end up following Peter along, and after getting to know Peter's preaching so well, he would accompany it into what we have as the biography of Jesus known as the Gospel of Mark. And so Mark becomes a very critical person in the history of the church, but at this point, he is just some son of a woman who has a home and actually the cousin of a man named Barnabas. And so while they are together, they were all praying in his home. This is the centralized location for meeting. It's a, probably a larger home. Paul and Barnabas, who are in town for the famine, are probably in this prayer meeting. So you know this is a holy prayer meeting. They, they, these guys are confident God's got something going on. Man, they're sitting there going, God, we know you can let Peter out. We know you have all power and can break through all things. For you are the Lord. We have no doubts. We do not worry. We do not fear. So while this amazing prayer meeting is going on, Peter comes up to the door, and he knocks at the door of the gateway. And a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Hello? Who is it? It's me. It's Peter. And she gets so excited. <laughs> He's like, let me in, quick. <laughs> she runs up, doesn't open the door. Can you imagine? That's this perfect scene. Peter's like, hey. He's like looking down the street, trying to make sure nobody notices. Knock, knock, knock. Where did you go? She's gone upstairs to the holy prayer meeting where everyone is so faithful and sure that God is going to do this. And she runs upstairs and she says, look, Peter's standing at the gate. And they all said, amen, sister, we know. This is awesome. Let us go get our... No, this is what they said. You're out of your mind. What a, what a prayer meeting. We're praying God will release him and when he does, we still don't believe it. She kept insisting. It was so, keep saying, well, and they keep saying, ah, it's his angel. And there's a weird, weird, like, aside there. Some commentators believe that this, it is his angel, means they believe that, um, as many Jewish people did, that there was a particular angel who is supposed to protect you as a person, and that that angel can appear like you in order to bring message and stuff like that. It's found in a book called Tobit where this shows up, but um, others think that, no, they probably thought he was dead then, and this was his spirit kind of showing up. Bottom line is, I think that we just are missing the sarcasm emoji in the text, and what we see here is actually them going, yeah, you're out of your mind. Because I just don't follow the logic. You're out of your mind. It was his angel. No, I think it was, you're out of your mind. No, it's probably his angel. You know, that's kind of what, how I think that they're saying this to her. Like, come on. You simple, you simple little slave girl running the, running the front door. Peter's not out. Yeah, there would be slave, there would be guards yelling and screaming. This just, no, 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 no. I think this is important for us to stop and, and ponder for a second, especially when it comes to our prayer lives. Because a lot of us feel guilty that when you pray for somebody, there's this nagging doubt in the back of your head, what if God doesn't answer? You know, if I'm praying over you and you ask for a healing, and I'm sitting there going, God, just heal them. Man, and if you don't, I, I got to pray, a, you know, like my backup prayer so that God can still be faithful. And so just see that this is a natural human condition. That even when God answers your prayer, a lot of times you're like, oh my gosh, God actually answered this. 
The same thing is true. Even when people of great faith like Barnabas and Saul are sitting in the prayer room, don't knock yourself if you struggle in some way with the idea that God's going to answer everything that you pray for. They're sitting there, God's answered it, and they don't even believe it. And so Rhoda goes out. In the meantime, we're standing back out with Peter, and he's like, come on, open the door. He's still knocking, and they came, they opened, and then they saw him, and they were amazed. I mean, this just underscores the fact that they didn't believe it. They are blown away. And they probably were like, oh, it's Peter, it's Peter. Everybody's shouting and dancing and singing, and he's like, Shut up, that's gonna calm down. Because this isn't over. The guards are looking, somebody's searching. This, they know this is a Christian home. You guys are up in the middle of the night. Why did they think you'd be celebrating? Be quiet. And he's got hand signals and all this stuff going on. I love that, but motioning to them with his hand to be silent. He, he described them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. So he explains the miraculous situation. They're all blown away, but they're now having to be quiet because this is a dangerous setup. Peter is the number one spectacle in the morning. And if he doesn't get out of here, he's still going to be the number one spectacle in the morning. And what happens is he says this. He says to them, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Now, note, this is not James, the guy who just got beheaded, because he's not listening to anything. This is the James, the brother of Jesus. And the brothers of Jesus, namely like Jude and some others, what had happened was the apostles apparently have moved on in this, and now James, the brother of Jesus, has stepped up. We, he, will, he will be the head of the church from this point forward. And we know that there was a, the group of his brothers that had come to believe in, in their brother as Jesus, and they became kind of like the elders of the church. And so what happens here is that he says, tell them, and then he departed and went to another place. The leader left. Oh, that's so much faith. I mean, God just got you out of a prison. Why'd you leave? Because he knew that he couldn't stay around. It was time for him to go. Now, what's interesting here is that it says he went to another place. This just underscores two things. It underscores how historically involved this book is. Luke is writing in a time where he felt so uncomfortable to tell you where he went. Because if he did, it's likely the person's home that he went to would have probably been found out and that person would have been in trouble. It, it is so careful that this, it's very clear that he's writing it in a time period where wherever he went would get somebody in trouble. So when people try to tell you, yeah, this was written 200 years ago, why not just say where Peter went then? No, what you have is Dr. Luke writing in the time period with the very people that you're seeing. This is historically accurate information. And so when he's doing this, then he's saying, literally, Peter left. He just, this is, this is it, he's gone. He's not in charge of the Jerusalem church anymore. That's a pretty intense thing. Why would God go through all of these miracles, overcome all of this doubt, put Peter in this situation, only to have him leave? What is he doing? And how in the world does this connect to the question of missions? What does this have to do with God, God taking the gospel global? Well, as I said at the beginning, the restriction, one of the restrictions we put on ourselves is, oh, you know, we've got a leader and he, he can't go. The leaders, the leaders aren't supposed to go anywhere. And what we see here is that actually we can't make leadership a restriction. And don't, so don't let being a leader in the church be a restriction for you. Don't let being a leader in the church be a restriction for you. That is not your job to say when God's going to send you or not send you. You Really, a leader 
is oftentimes one of the groups he will remove. He'll, he'll have them take off. Peter takes off and he begins to do missionary work all through Turkey. In fact, he'll go up north of Turkey, he'll go through the Balkans, what we call the Balkan states, down through a little bit of, of Greece, and eventually he'll find his way into Rome where he'll be, he'll be crucified upside down. And what's interesting about Peter is that he'll go back to Jerusalem occasionally, but from this point on, he is out on the missionary journey. Same with all the other apostles. They don't come back together. They all go to different locations throughout the world. And so the bottom line is, when leadership leaves, it's just true. Think about it this way. Given enough time, your leadership will either end up like James or go like Peter, right? Given enough time, your leadership's going to die because they're going to get old or something's going to happen, or they're going to move on to whatever God has for them next. There will always be a movement of leadership in the church. Leadership is not permanent. It is not constant. And the reason I know that this is important is because this is a hinge piece. We're moving from the local mission of Jerusalem to the global mission of the, go- of the gospel. And sitting right here is this hinge of Antioch, this movement that happens to Peter, and then suddenly even Antioch's going to kick their leaders out. Check this out. Go down to chapter 13. We'll start at verse 20. We'll start at the end of chapter 12 at verse 25. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. So they were in John Mark's house. They even take him with them. Now, there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who is called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manan, a member of the, house, of the court of, the, of Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. And so what we have here are, are five different leaders. It used to be just Barnabas and Saul. Now three others have been risen up, and they're, they're there for them to help run this uh, church in Antioch. And then one day they're, pray, they're worshiping and, and praising God, and while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work I've called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid hands on them and sent them off. And now Paul and Barnabas enter into their missionary journey. Lots of leaders are going. Lots of leaders are abandoning churches here. What are you doing? I thought you were called to this church. This is the place you founded. Why are you going somewhere else? Maybe the point here is clear that, you know, God's not always asking leadership to stay. God is not always necessarily telling a leadership they, they're stuck in their location. In fact, what we see here is that leadership can go when other leadership is trained up. The best illustrations for me in my life is, is Jared, our, our youth pastor. He was at a church that he had been saved at. He had gone through the ranks of training there. He had gotten into the youth ministry. He would become the youth pastor, uh, the high school pastor there. And uh, one day while they were on vacation, him and his wife were here meeting up with their family. Um, they were on their way back, and they just felt this conviction like, wow, this, this, we're not going back towards home anymore. I feel like we're supposed to be in Corona with, with our family. What is going on? And so in faith, you know, Jared went out and started looking at, hey, are there other churches? And lo and behold, we had just posted that day well, that we had needed a youth pastor, and we are about, a, you know, literally, a, you know, less than a mile or so away from where they, where they had been staying. This is near their home. They're just like, this is crazy. Go through the interview process. We are able to hire Jared. Jared knows that God's moving him on, but what, he, what I love is that when he talks about the story, he's able to say that he was, one of his proudest moments is he raised up leaders, and that youth group is still functioning, is still running, because he had brought leaders up, and that his going didn't destroy it. 
it just continued to go so now that he could use his leadership here to continue to do what God had called him to do here. That's how it works. And in every case for our leadership, that's how it works. We need to have leadership rising up and replacing. It needs to come up and come underneath. This finishes that foundation. Yes, you need outreach so you can have people come to know Jesus. You need discipleship so they know how to follow Jesus and have more outreach so they can go global. But you need leadership to lead the church. And those three things become the foundation of a church so that when the leaders go, the new leaders step in and the church thrives and it grows. And here at Olive Branch, we have this, this reality. New leadership enables the, gospel, the local gospel to continue. So they, the founders leave and the new ones come up. Two points of interest. The church, one, didn't fall apart because they trained up new leadership. Two, the church didn't run after their leaders. They didn't go, oh, Peter, we'll all go with you wherever you go because you are the church. No. That's a very, very interesting thing that happens in churches is that we can get so attached to the, the upfront leader, the preacher or whatever. We'll get weird things. I've been here long enough that I've, I've heard it a few times where I've had people say, hey, if you weren't at this church, I wouldn't be coming here. Or I've had people go, we're moving to another state. Would you go with us? We'll start an olive branch out there. So many of us are there already anyway. By this point, I think we could have started one in Arizona and Kentucky and Idaho, you know, everywhere, everybody in Texas. Everybody everywhere has moved out. You know, it's because they all find out their house is worth like a small state somewhere out there. But uh, the bottom line is, while well, that's flattering, man, I don't want you who are here at Olive Branch to be coming to Olive Branch because I'm preaching. You should be coming to Olive Branch because God's using you here at Olive Branch with your gifts. I shouldn't make this place Olive Branch for you. You make it Olive Branch. And that's the difference between a staff-run church and a church. And the opportunity for you to step in and use your giftedness is a power that God has given to you so that this becomes your, the church has an identity because you are here. This becomes your ministry that you get to bring in. And so what happens then is that leadership begins by those who are disciples stepping out using their gifts and stepping in to a volunteer position. And that's really what we want to encourage people towards. And make Olive Branch your home and make it your ministry. Have a volunteer position. Do Have something to do. Man, you have a bunch of kids up here leading us in worship and they're volunteering. Isn't that awesome? I mean, for a whole week, these kids are giving up a week of their summer vacation and a lot more because they were prepping before that. And some of us are going, I never gave up that much. <laughs> But some of us have this opportunity to step in to some kind of task. And that's what volunteering is. It's a task. Sometimes we think, oh, well, I can't do volunteering. It's so much. You've got to have so many skills. No, we're just asking you to do a task. Man, if you can, if you can be kind to people and, and hang out with people and love people and hand out bulletins, that's a task. Praise God. You make coffee, that's a task. And that helps loosen up and enable people to be a part of things. Now, you'll find out there are cases where you're, where you're like, I'm going to wait for my calling. Don't do that. There are cases where you just need to step in and you're going to help out. And you may be helping out children and find out, I hate children. <laughs> and we're going to say, then don't do children's ministry. Get out of there. If you don't like people, please don't greet them at the door. It's like you're like, take the bulletin, you jerk. Come back here. No, that's not who we want. <laughs> Obviously, what we're looking for are people who have gifts and they're connecting in the spot and they want to try it and they want to give it a shot. But you don't have to wait around for God to come and, oh, you will be the greatest coffee maker ever. No, no, no. Just step in. And what often happens is when you step in, you'll discover your calling over time. 
You'll discover what God has called you to as you kind of try things out and engage. And so we want to call you to try out a ministry. Get engaged. Our job is to help grow you from there. You're like, well, I don't really have any gifts. I'm just good at organizing things. Man, we need people to organize things. Some of you who stepped up last time I said that, you now realize how much we need organization around here, right? Okay, some, some of you are shaking your heads because we got enough people who can make messes. We, we just need some people who can help us put it together. But the, the hope and the dream is that we would all find a place. And so you need to step in to try something. So you're like, well, how do I do that? I've tried before. Well, we're going to give you another shot. Keep persevering because sometimes things get lost and, and we're not as quick on the draw to get you plugged in. We understand that. We're working on our side. And what we want to do, though, is encourage you not to give up. And say, well, where do I go? Well, if you're a low-tech person, you've got papers right on the seat. Just pick up one of those, look at one of the categories, select one that you want to try, or we'll help kind of discover those giftings or a few. Let us know and drop it in the box. Take it to Connection Central. If you're like, I'm a little bit mid-tech, you know, okay, then you can text serve to this number right now. You don't have to listen to anything else. Just apply the sermon right where we're at and go home feeling satisfied. I took the word of God and I lived it out. And you just text serve and it'll give you a link and you'll be able to sign up for one of those ministries. If you have the app, that's your third route. You can just open the app up and it has on the first opening page a circle there that says something about join a service, join a ministry. Click that and you're in. And sign that, and then it's up to our team to make sure that we plug you in and train you up and get you moving. And one day, while you're serving, and some of you who are serving, this will happen to you. Maybe it already has. Is somebody you're going to get to be known? People are going to see your skill, and they're going to tap you and say, "Hey, you know, I think you could go further with this." And they're going to call you up to leadership, and that means you need to step up to leadership. That can be a scary moment. But realize stepping up to leadership sometimes is just taking on a couple more tasks or even more likely it's asking somebody, helping somebody else know how to do what you do. So you take what you can do and your task as you've learned it and go, I can now help you do that and I'm going to help you continue to do that and eventually have five or six people that you're helping do what you used to do. Making sure they're there, that's leadership. Eventually that grows to where you're helping other people who are helping people. And leadership is helping people to help people to do what needs to be done. And our opportunity here in this case is to continue to guide and lead that down. We should be equipping, we should be guiding, but guys, if we're going to see the church grow, we're going to see us continue to reach out and see it uh, multiply in venues or church plants or overseas, that means leadership steps up, it replaces, it fills in so that those people who, man, have been doing leadership for a long time, you know sometimes what they need? They need a break. They just need to breathe. And we need to have leadership ready to step up and step in. So God may be leading them to their next thing because God wants the leaders to go global. When it comes to the global situation, God calls the leaders. Say, really? Yeah, think about it. You want to send the junk out to the mission field? And I don't mean that meanly, but I'm just like, it's like, what if we were to just do this? And this is how we found, you know, our, our minister, our, our missionaries. We just did a giant Small group survivor situation where everybody voted off their most annoying person in their small group. We gather all those annoying people together, and then they all get to vote who's the most annoying out of the most annoying. And then we bring them up front. We say, these are our missionaries because none of us like them, and we'd rather them be somewhere else anyway. That is not a reason to do missions. It's a bad idea altogether. You don't want somebody who, who doesn't know how to get things done or move people forward. That's not who you send to start churches in other countries. You send leadership. Those who've been discipled, those who know how to outreach, and those people who know how to bring up other leaders. That's who you need to go. So when people go, why are you sending the leaders? You go, because you should. They're the right people to send. They're the best people to send. 
And that means next week, as we're going to pray over a couple of our leaders who you've got to see in various scenarios, get ready to go off to where God's called them to, that objection of, man, he, he's so good at what he does. Why would you be sinning? She's so good at what she does. Why would you? Because we send leaders. And that means we're going to have people who need to step up behind them. And that's exciting as a church. And that means maybe God's been pricking your heart to say, maybe I should be going global. Maybe God wants me to go to another country to do this. That means he's calling you to leadership. You should get involved if you're not starting. The first place you start then is at volunteering, and then you move up and you grow in your leadership skills and your abilities because that's what we look for as you prepare for sending the gospel globally. So leadership's not a restriction when it comes to the gospel going global. No, leadership is the final piece of the foundation of a healthy church that launches the gospel globally. But there's a second restriction that shows up, and that is this. Well, it's so dangerous in that country that you're sending them to. I mean, the government doesn't even want Christians there. Why would we be sending them there? The leadership doesn't want them there. And, and that's, that's where we got to remember that leadership that tries to stop the gospel will not succeed. A leadership that's against the gospel like Herod was is not ultimately going to succeed. First of all, because the church is going to pray against them. Amen? We should be standing there praying against those governments that are trying to hold it back. And guess what? We may not feel like God's going to answer our prayers. We may be like, God, the Chinese government's huge. The North Korean government's powerful. We can't really stop them. We're going to do our best to pray for our persecuted brothers. And we may not be sure, but they weren't sure either. They weren't sure either that Peter was going to get out. James was dead. And so when I tell you we need to be faithful in our prayers, hear me. I need to clarify something. Too often in the church, we've taught that faithful prayers are those people who are sure God will answer me. Man, I'm sure God will answer my prayer. That's why he'll answer it. And we almost turn it into this like, if I just say he'll do it, then he'll do it. If I just quote God's scripture, then he has to do it. I bind him. No, 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 no. That's not faithful prayer. Faithful prayer isn't about being sure God will answer, but how consistent you are at asking God to act. Let me, let me tell you that again. Faithful prayer is less about how sure you are that God will answer your prayer and more about how consistent you are at asking God to answer your prayer. Because a faithful person shows he's faithful by not giving up, not by how confident he is that God's going to answer his one-off prayer a long time ago. And so when we talk about being faithful to pray, it means that we consistently keep praying, even though he didn't answer the first night or the second night, or even it looked like he was answering the third night. We stand faithful as we pray for our brothers and sisters in China. As we pray for our brothers and sisters in North Korea, in India, in the Middle East, where they are being persecuted and killed. Because we know that God ultimately will answer. God will judge those who persecute his church. Check it out. That's found right here as we continue on. Verse 18. Chapter 12, verse 18. Now, when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. That's called an understatement. Like, there is bedlam happening looking for Peter. They're turning the whole place over. They're looking for him like crazy. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries. And then he ordered them to be, to be put to death. Nice guy, that Herod, isn't he? I mean, oh, you lost the soldiers? Fine. You're all dead. You, I'm going to have a spectacle, and it's going to be you. 
And so he puts them to death, and he kind of, you know, but Herod's getting away with it. What's going to happen to him? Oh, nothing. He's just going to go up to Caesarea and deal with some politics, that's all. And so they went down from Caesarea, or from Judea to Caesarea, and spent time there. So then there's this problem that shows up, and Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. They're griping and arguing over a political issue and um, over food, basically. And uh, the people of Tyre and Sidon uh, persuade Blastus, the king's chamberlain. Man, now that is an awesome name. Name your kid Blastus, right? Here, Blasty. It's like, that's just, uh, that's, I love that name. Anyway, sorry, side note. And so what we see here is that he gets in this argument, and he steps out. With all the people of Tyre and Sidon in front of him one morning after he puts on his royal robes. Now, what's interesting about this day is that Josephus talks about it too. These royal robes that he put on were lined with silver in them. So as he steps out, he looks like Liberace, just shining like a disco ball, right? And so people are watching him as he's stepping out in the, in the sunrise, and, and they are shouting as he's speaking, The voice of a God, not of a man! And immediately it says in the scripture, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. And you're like, eaten by worms? Like what, a sandworm came up? Like, um, yeah, what kind of world are we talking about here? Well, according to Josephus, this man in the middle of his message, this very Herod, crumples over from a stomach pain and declares verbally, God is punishing me for my, for my receiving their, their praise and he says this out loud, and five days later, he dies of just an ulcerated, bloated stomach, and these maggots and worms come out of his stomach. And indeed, he died having been eaten by worms, attested in two historical documents. The bottom line here is that Herod's end was unusual, and it was final, because God is not going to allow his gospel to be stopped by some leadership. He is going to judge every evil government that seeks to stop God. And we can, while it's not our job to declare when a nation has been judged, I don't think that's helpful to stand on a pulpit and say that hurricane or that tsunami or that thing is God's, that just doesn't help. Unless God said it directly from his word that that was his judgment, let's leave that up for an answer in heaven. But what you can be sure of is that God will indeed one day judge every single one of those rulers, be them in China, be them in North Korea, be it somebody who in, who's in the UK trying to shut down the gospel or the USA, no government is going to stand by and get away without facing their government, namely the God of the universe, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the President of Presidents, the Despot of Despots, the Lord of all, and not have to face him one day for what they've done. And we can be confident then in our prayers. And we can be confident that God will stop these governments and the gospel will continue. The gospel will not stop. Look at verse 24, because in all the conclusion is, but the word of God increased and multiplied. Even though Peter and the apostles were gone, the word of God increased and multiplied in Jerusalem. Even though there were new leaders in Jerusalem, the word of God increased and multiplied. The word of God increased and multiplied in Antioch. Even though Paul and Barnabas had left and those three new leaders were remaining, the word of God will increase and multiply regardless of who we send out because it will increase and multiply to the 200,000 people around us. It will increase and multiply in whatever nation we send missionaries to and whatever place that we find the church. God will not be stopped and we can be confident that if we will step into our place and step up to leadership, continue to outreach and do disciples this message will go to the ends of the earth. Amen? And that's our calling. 
That's what we get to be a part of. And so let me encourage you one more time. Respond in the first step. Maybe that's in prayer for those nations. Maybe that is to step into service. And you just text that serve or use that paper. But we gave you every way we can. Maybe it's to step up into that leadership. But our opportunity is right in front of us. This is the time that God has put us on earth. This is the time that he's led us to act. This is the moment in which we need to seize. Because this is the moment that God has given to you and he's given to me with the gospel that we have. It's going through us to someone else. Let's no longer say, I can't. We need to be saying, I can. And I want to encourage you in that. Would you bow your heads with me? Father, I pray that you would indeed help us to be a people who say, I can. God, whether it's I can stepping into a a task of leadership, whether it's I can in praying and seeking you to act on behalf of our brothers and sisters in China, oh, please help them, Lord. Help our brothers and sisters in North Korea and all the persecuted states and nations there in the Middle East, God. Reveal yourself and show us that you are acting because we know that you can. And so, Lord, if you're moving some of us overseas or you're moving some of us to act into service and ministry, then give us this opportunity. We're stepping into leadership. Open up our hearts and give us that I can mentality. Because, God, we want you to be glorified. And we know that as we follow after your way and your word, it indeed will spread into the nations. God, let it spread. Let it cover this world like water the sea, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.